0: Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is joined by John Perlin, solar historian, author, and physicist at UC Santa Barbara. Join us for a fascinating conversation on the 6,000-year history of solar energy, its unlimited potential, and its importance in creating a sustainable future. It all starts now on The Solar Podcast. Like to Welcome everyone back to the Solar Podcast. This is Dave Anderson. I'm the host. I'm thrilled to have with me today, John Perlin. John is a professor. He's an author. He's an outdoorsman and an environmental enthusiast. And maybe most interesting for this podcast is also a solar historian. I'm going to want to dive into that a little bit to understand really what it means to be a scientist and a historian at the same time, where I think science usually is fairly forward looking. Um, a lot of your career has been spent looking in the past at things that we've learned over time and really trying to chronolog or to, to, to build a chronology of the history. Of of uh, trying to capture energy from the sun. So, John, welcome to the podcast. I'd love you to fill in any holes for our listeners that I uh, that I missed out on.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I hope you'll mention the book uh, "Let It Shine" of the six thousand year story of solar energy. And second of all, as a scientist, uh, history is uh, extremely important because the history provides a, a foundation uh, for understanding all the solar uh, technologies in a way that. Um, the uh, layperson can better understand because it provides a, a story rather than a just a technical treatise but included in the book is everything you'd want to know uh for a current um application uh in fact uh, one of my uh tasks at the university of california santa barbara has been uh to um oversee uh the solarization of the campus with uh today's uh technology but knowing how it works is very important uh, to uh, creating the best, uh, you know, solar um, choices uh, today. In fact, in in fact, in fact, uh, people uh, are very interested in asking, "Well, how many ways can we use solar energy?" And showing the history uh, shows that first of all, it's a tried and true technology, but second of all. Uh, Explaining the differences between, uh, for example, solar thermal and, say, uh, photovoltaics, because one uses the heat of the sun, the other uses uh, what's called the energy of the sun. And uh, to understand the history of how people uh, were able to bifurcate the two different aspects uh, explains um, how to design a collector today.
0: Yeah, John, obviously we want to talk about your uh, most recent book, The 6,000 Year Story of the Solar Energy. Uh, you are an author of four different books, and so we might delve into different parts of each of those books. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm hoping that you can tease us with some more information that comes from that book. Obviously, we want to understand as uh, as this is a solar podcast, we we talk about how we harness the energy typically through the photovoltaic side. But it is great to talk about the history, the 6,000 year history, as you put it in your book, uh, different applications and uses of the sun. So uh, I'd love to explore that a little Bit, but I but I have to pause for just a second and note sure. that uh, right behind you. And I don't know if it's a prop or if it's just that's its natural resting place. But I see your bike there, so correct. you 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 certainly are practicing what you preach. Uh, as I understand, you're you're not a owner of a motor vehicle. Is that correct? No,
1: no, I haven't owned a motor vehicle in about 20 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. What what made you transition away from uh, having a car? Just decided it wasn't uh, there was no utility in having one, or what what what, what made you transition away from having a vehicle?
1: Well, I always did my bike, uh, but, oh about, um, see, uh, yeah, 20 years ago, I was actually a, um, a, a parent and, uh, usually me and my son took the bus and things like that, but at times, um, I had to drive in places, uh, but, um, we mainly walked and uh, my son is actually, he now has his PhD in organic chemistry, uh, and, um, you know and bicycling as i find the best speed uh to um live at
0: yeah no i appreciate that
1: plus it, plus it keeps me in shape i mean i i do at least uh 8, steps a day and uh climb according to my iphone uh, 30 stories
0: yeah that's excellent and then spend some time on the bike as well which is fantastic right uh jumping back into the book so the 6000-year history maybe you can start us out with what were some of the first and uh, um applications or uses that individuals or civilizations found for the sun obviously we heat and light but uh but more specifically what were some of the applications that you uh, talk about in your book
1: Well actually the major breakthrough was to uh determine where the sun is during the year uh because most people think that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west uh, but this is only true two times a year in the uh, equinoxes. Otherwise, it's depending on the season. In the wintertime, time, it's either in the su- it's, it's it rises in the southeast and sets in the southwest. And and I must preface this: this is for the um oh um um the the um northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, it's just the opposite. Uh, so. You want a house uh, facing and between ten and two every day of the year. The house, uh, the sun is in the south uh, above us. Uh, depending uh, where you are, I mean, obviously in uh, the Nordic countries uh, where you don't have any sun for three or four months of the year, this doesn't apply. Uh, but uh, to know where the sun is, and the Chinese uh, thousands of years ago developed what was called a uh, gnomon, uh, which was a stick in the ground. And from that shadow, uh, you could tell the, uh, changing, um, sea, uh, the, the changes of the sun during the year. Um, and then you uh, w- could learn how to build correctly. And this, like I s- uh, said earlier, uh, the history is applicable because only if you know where the sun is can you place a solar collector properly whether it's uh, um, a heat collector or whether it's a photovoltaic collector I mean if you if you put your photovoltaic collector for example in the north uh, you're not going to get any action um, and um, also uh, depending on um, how you want to collect the electricity for example uh, collect the sorry the sun's energy uh, for example in California uh, people are more interested in um, the su- in the southwest uh, because um for uh the times of the year when the load is the most you want to um catch that uh setting sun in the evening uh to offset uh the time when people come home and start using electric compliance uh, uh, appliances yeah the bi- the biggest oh, uh invention ever was to be able to determine in a scientific way where the sun is uh, during the entire year. And that enabled uh, from that time on um, where to uh, say, um, orient a house, for example, or how to orient a um, solar electric um, um, cell.
0: Yeah. Yeah, obviously there are a handful of things that go into determining where and how to place a solar panel, whether it's photovoltaic or thermal. Um, the modeling software has become has come a long way from a perpendicular stick in the ground, of course, and when we're taking into account how much electricity production can you get from a solar panel and then you juxtapose that against or you put it against the offset, so it's both in terms of cost as well as in terms of kilowatt hours, uh, you try to figure out how to maximize uh, both the efficiency and the value of a solar panel. And with uh, the time of use rates that exist in California on the residential side, placing those solar panels uh, is actually a pretty precise science at this point. And And the modeling software that we use has made it uh, pretty efficient with fantastic modeling to be able to really derive and deduce what is the best place to put a solar panel. And I think that there's a lot of actually misnomers about that. I mean, obviously, uh, no matter which side of the house you're standing on, there's definitely some sun, but there's a sunnier spot and a less sunny spot. And solar panels cost the same if you put them in the sunny spots or the shady spots. So we try to put them in the sunny spots, of course. And there's as much as a 30 or 40% reduction to the energy depending on what latitude you're on if you're putting panels on the north versus putting them on the south facing
1: the sun. You're very correct. Uh, So uh, what the uh, book does is, uh, for example, um, solar thermal uh, is uh, actually uh, still quite in use throughout the world. Uh, This is a misunderstanding. It's not all uh, photovoltaic. Uh, For example, in uh, Denmark and Sweden, um, you have a tremendous amount of uh, production of solar um, thermal panels uh, for uh what they call district heating uh because in the winter time when you don't have the sun if you have storage for say a long term um you can store that heat um for those uh, homes uh, so like like uh some of the biggest uh, manufacturing of uh panels happens with uh, solar um thermal and in China too um the um Use of uh, thermal panels is is very large, and also in the Mediterranean, in Turkey, in Israel, and in Cyprus and in Greece, you have a uh, high percentage of people using solar water heaters that originated in the 19th century in California and basically used the same design. And so the history is very relevant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was a period of time in California. In fact, the really early predecessors to the to the current PV, the photovoltaic movement that exists in California, there was a pretty strong thermal movement that happened uh, mostly in the 80s. There were some pretty big subsidies that came about and we would see these pretty quite large um, panels that would typically have copper tubing and then some sort of a, a laminate that would cover the copper tubing, and it would heat up the water that you'd pump up onto the roof, and then you could use that for for home water. Um, you, you don't see those quite as often in California, but what you do still see are are you know the black tubing-like uh, uh, panels that are up on people's roofs, particularly in California and some of the warmer climates that, that's used to actually heat pools more than anything now. Um, but, but there's lots of applications. And, but let's rewind a little bit for, further back into the, the past. So we had the gnomon, which was the vertical stick that was stuck in the ground 4,000 years ago. Um, and uh, wh- where, did, uh, where did the history, uh, in terms of the history of the world, where did we progress from the gnomon?
1: Well, uh, first of all, uh, according to the, um, uh, um, leading, uh, science historian, uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, the gnomon was probably the most important invention, uh, ever developed for our understandings of astronomy, um, um, ever, it, uh, leapfrogged, uh, science into a more empirical, um, mindset, but, uh, what it led to, uh, were two things, uh, one was, uh, solar uh concentrators uh where in China um uh, thousands of years ago almost every home had a solar concentrator uh to uh start the evening fire uh, because until the nineteenth century uh people had to use friction uh to um uh, create uh you know a dinner a dinner fire for example uh and that is a very laborious uh techni- you know <laughs> you know activity and so if you um set the uh and, and the and then and actually this still pertains to today now that I think about it, the reason why we eat uh or at least in the Mediterranean, the biggest meal is during um after uh early afternoon, and that was because um in the past uh people used the concentrator to create the fire for the dinner uh fire uh which was uh the best time was the um early afternoon. Uh, So we see solar concentrators as a very early development, but one other development that was even more important was what we call solar architecture, where we build houses uh, to keep the sun out during the summertime, but uh, allow the uh, sun to stream in uh, during the uh, wintertime. And we find the use of solar architecture uh, in almost every city was actually planned So every house could use uh, the sun. And uh, this occurred on a huge scale, uh, both in ancient China, ancient um, Rome, and uh, ancient uh, Greece, uh, and during what we call the uh, Middle Ages.
0: Yeah. You know, there's still a version of that exists. So I live in the Rocky Mountains now, so I'm recording this from Salt Lake City area. And south-facing homes are still fairly desirable, particularly right now. So as at the time of this recording, over my shoulder, you can likely see the white-capped Mountains. We've had a, a pretty big snow year this year. And for those that uh, are not huge fans of snow removal, those south-facing uh, driveways are far more economical in terms of removing the sun than the north-facing ones that te- have typically had uh, snow on them. The north sides of the houses typically keep snow pretty much year round. The south side of the house, uh, the snow, at least in this climate, tends to melt off. Um, and from the day sun or the the, the sun at the daylight. So if you don't like moving removing snow, uh, like most people don't here in Salt Lake in this area and lots of parts of the Rockies where you you see um, uh, a lot of snow, is those southern facing houses become very desirable by purchasers just because simply they want their driveways to be uh, uh, you know cleared off by the sun as opposed to having constantly to shovel them.
1: So so um, not. Being uh, a native of uh, California, uh, born and uh, raised here, uh, never having to uh, occupy myself with snow, uh, I have a question. Do a lot of people use uh, like a uh, power unit uh, to remove the uh, snow from their um, driveways?
0: Yeah, I wish that were true. So I, I would say some of the higher end homes in, in the Rocky Mountains and areas with snow use some form of coiling or wiring or uh, radiators under the driveway to actually melt snow off the driveway. But for the most part, it's a very mechanical process. You go out there with a okay. the shovel and you push snow out of the way.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you, you know, you know uh, pardon my ignorance because I've never, uh, ever shoveled snow.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I spent a lot of time in California, and and there was a period of time, particularly early days, where... Customers would express concerns about putting solar panels on the fronts of their home, and so I would say a lot of residential sale or uh, residential resellers of solar would oftentimes target homes or talk to homes that were north facing, knowing that the panels would go on the back of the home that would be south facing. Uh, You know, compare that to here again in the Rocky Mountains and other areas that get a lot of snow. uh, Homes that are south facing are pretty desirable, so it's a totally different mindset uh, for totally different reasons, but all related to the sun. Interestingly, depending on whether you're in California and you're trying to harness the sun or whether in the rocky mountains and trying to melt the snow so
1: well one of the interesting uh tidbits that i uh, discovered um as i uh, wrote the book that actually um in um california in the 1980s uh the only successful commercial use of solar was in a uh, pool heating it, it runs very much against the grain of uh you know of our thoughts but um it's actually a company named Fafco. Uh, made uh, a fortune, uh, you know, designing uh, low-temperature panels uh, because it had several advantages. The first advantage is that you had storage uh, because the pool served as storage. You know, the the water, you had the water uh, already, uh, the storage for the water already there. And two, uh, the lower uh, heat that the panels, uh, you know, um, absorbed, um, was uh, more efficiently uh, used because you had less uh, thermodynamically uh, um, loss of uh, heat.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So FAFCO panels still exist in the marketplace today. So you can see them actually and find them at a lot of, a lot of um, places where you can see pools. You'll see those. Uh, they, they're, they're typically 8, 10, or 12 feet long and about 4 feet wide. And they look like black tarps up on the roof with piping that goes to the to, the, to it and and they, they, they pump the panels up onto the panels and back down into the pool to heat the pool.
1: Yes, that was uh, something that I discovered because I thought that the biggest market would have been, um you know, the uh, solar water heater panels. Uh, but it turned out in the 70s, uh, the only really profitable application uh, were um, the uh, pool heaters.
0: Yeah, it's tough when you're heating water for your house because... Uh, the sun is incredibly efficient at heating water up, but when you know people want hot water when they want hot water, and uh, um, you know it's it doesn't store particularly efficiently either. So you you take the water, you heat it up, and then you put it down into some sort of a reservoir, and it you would lose temperature pretty quickly at nighttime, and people would have to supplement with uh, with gas or with electric. Um, so when you're talking about the the home application of heating water, it was just not as uh, it just wasn't as successful uh, for the most part. Well, actually,
1: um, and that's an interesting part of the history uh, was originally the first solar water heat, commercial solar water heaters in the 1890s were just tanks uh, in uh, under uh, glass um, in a container uh, on the roof. Uh, and they would lose heat very quickly at night. But then you had the invention of what was called the day and night solar water heater. Uh, where you had what's called a thermosiphon, where you had the collector and the storage separate, and as the water warmed, it would naturally uh, go uh, into the storage tank. and so uh, people could have hot water day and night. Uh, and this was a huge uh, selling point, and uh, there were hundreds of thousands of uh, day and night solar water heaters um, uh, put up uh, between nineteen oh nine. And oh, uh, 1930 in in California and and Florida, uh, but this uh, tran- um, metamorphized into a huge application in the Mediterranean to this day. And so here we see uh, a very um, excellent uh, example of why history is valuable because it's sort of like building with Legos. Uh, we you know we put Lego onto Lego, and we see. Uh, an application that was developed in nineteen oh nine that is still used by, for example, ninety percent of the people in um Israel and a good portion of the people, um, almost hundred percent in Cyprus and about, I think it's about fifty or sixty percent in Turkey. Oh, in China. Uh actually actually the um equivalent of uh, all the solar water heaters installed or uh is about approximately um five hundred um Oh, um, gigawatts of wow. uh, power. It's um, you know, it's a very large scale. It's just that we don't see it here in um, uh, the United States.
0: Yeah, I think people are sometimes surprised to find out exactly how inefficient the home hot water heaters are. In fact, they're the least efficient, generally speaking. Um, appliance, um, and energy hogs that exist in many people's homes. So obviously, uh, the Solar Podcast, were huge proponents of solar generally. We certainly have an emphasis on the photovoltaic side of it. Um, but one of the things that oftentimes gets asked is, hey, if, if once I go solar, can I switch all my appliances out to electricity? And of course, we're very big proponents of that. But if you were to take a natural uh, hot water heater that had storage and swap, swap it out from a, a gas or liquid propane and move it to um, an electricity-based hot water heater, it's an inc- it's an incredible amount of electricity that those require to be able to keep water warm or hot inside those storage. So the, the instant hot water heaters that are electric do much better. Um, but anytime you're heating or cooling anything, it's just a real energy hog. It just takes a lot of electricity to do it.
1: Uh, another uh, two uses of... Um Uh, that's uh, happening right now in the uh, solar business is a combination of solar thermal with photovoltaics. And the value to that is the um, water carries away the heat and it makes the uh, photovoltaics uh, much more efficient uh, because probably you know that um, solar cells work best uh, uh, cooler the um, ambient temperature is. And, uh, that's because people mistake, and that's another value of the book, uh, the difference between, oh, um, the, uh, heat of the sun and the energy of the sun as shown by Einstein's, oh, um, light particle theory. And, and okay. And so, you know, although a light particle idea of Einstein was, uh, oh, more than a hundred years ago, uh, it's, um, still the most valuable, um, you Might say design tool for building a proper uh, photovoltaic cell uh, because we learned that the uh, particles of uh, the photons, uh, the most powerful photons, are the, um, uh, on the shorter wavelengths. And that's why we uh, design the active part of the solar cell as close as possible to the surface. In, in fact, if we didn't have Einstein's ideas, we could have never built. The first solar cells, because um, um, this was really the major um, oh, uh, force of uh, doing things properly.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a surprise for people to find out sometimes that Einstein. Uh, is really one of the fathers of photovoltaics, but he's really known for E equals mc squared. But perhaps his biggest contribution is actually going to be in this photovoltaic side as we're trying to do things like address climate change with the technology that he was uh, very influential in.
1: Well, actually, E equals mc squared explains uh, how we get the, um, how how the sun produces the energy that we're going to
0: use. Yeah, well, I don't have a PhD in physics, so I'm going to have to lean on you to tell explain how that works, but...
1: Well, I'll explain very, very, very simply what it shows as how um, it led to the discovery of the sun as a fusion reactor. Mm-hmm. Because in the past, until about 1925, uh, people believed that the sun was a, um, a a heat source rather than an energy source, and so people thought that the um, sun was lose its uh, you know power to produce. Uh, energy um in a very um geologically short time and but when uh it was proven by einstein and um oh hans Bethe that the sun was a fusion reactor we knew that we had about what six billion years left of solar energy uh for the planet
0: that's a pretty good horizon uh not indefinite but pretty good horizon nonetheless yeah, so going back a little bit to talking about those combined concentrators and collectors. So you take the the PV side with the thermal side and combine those. I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate that solar panels love to be love the light of the sun but don't love the heat of the sun. And a really important part of understanding how much energy or the efficiency of a cell is what they call the heat coefficient. And when you have something like water or when you're pumping water up on the roof and you can use that water to take some of the heat away or to cool uh, the panel, that you do get the benefit of an increased efficiency to the cell. Um, Now, I would love to see some of that coming to fruition more, but there hasn't been a great practical implementation or a panel that has any sort of success. There's been a few companies that have talked about it for, uh, you know, rumors of these things for, for years, but it hasn't really come to fruition yet. Why do you think that that might be the case?
1: Well, first of all, um, now that it struck my mind, um, one big um, uh, use of uh, past knowledge, you might say uh, in 1699 was the development of tracking uh, you know, following the sun throughout the day. And, um, that, um, is a very large, uh, use of, uh, photovoltaics today is, uh, you have, uh, several very large companies, uh, that are very successful in, uh, moving the, uh, photovoltaic panels with the, uh, with the arc of the sun throughout the day. And another part that's, uh, I think really coming on is, um, Using uh, solar panels as part of a building, uh, we call it building integrated photovoltaics. Uh, where instead of uh, buying concrete or wi- or window materials, you buy photovoltaic materials for a uh, double use. One is to provide you know the windows to provide to provide the infrastructure of the building, but also to uh, collect uh, electricity.
0: Yeah, there's there's different substrates or different. Typically when we think of a photovoltaic cell, we're thinking about the silicon cell. Uh, that that has come largely out of the semiconductor world, but there are different technologies. Thin film first solar is a very large multi-billion-dollar company here in the United States that uses a thin film technology. There's been lots of other things that you that have been um, theorized in terms of great substrates that could be used for photovoltaics um, and things like the paint on roads or uh, a film that you could put on windows, different places that you could use to collect. Uh, the energy that comes from the sun. The truth is is it doesn't actually take a lot of surface area to completely reduce or, or to replace all of the energy that we're using. That's cars, that's lights, that's everything. Uh, it wouldn't take a significant amount of square footage uh, to be able to do that. But one of the nice parts about using things like the BIPV, the built-in PV, is you want to generate the energy as close to where you're going to consume it, preferably as possible, to eliminate the, the transmission of energy across the, the globe.
1: Well, one of the beautiful things of photovoltaics is that you can uh, fit uh, modules for whatever uh, power need uh, you require. So if you need like one watt, you can just build a, a one watt cell or if you need like um, a gigawatt you can do the same in fact i was just reading this morning and it's really pertinent to our talk is that by 2027 um photovoltaics will be the main source of uh, electricity uh, throughout the world
0: yeah well t- 2000 did you say 2027 correct yeah, that's a little bit faster than, than a lot of the things that I've been reading, but I, I, that obviously excites me because it's, it's such a, 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 a plentiful power source.
1: Well, what, what also is, uh, I think, uh, for me, very fascinating about uh, doing a history is you can see, A, um, first of all, with, and taking photovoltaics as an example, um, how we started off from such a tiny base. You know, at first, photovoltaics were only used for satellites. Mm-hmm. But then um by uh you know by 2000 uh you started seeing this incremental growth uh for um you know uh, for uh, homes you know general general homes and today 2022 like uh we're at a terawatt level. And so to watch that oh um not only to watch the evolution but also to watch the different people who would argue against uh, using solar—you know—it'll never happen. It's uh, you know the sun's only up during the daytime. All these arguments, um, and um, so you see both the how a new technology goes from niche to niche, like a ladder, a step ladder, uh, towards the top to provide electricity for everyone.
0: We've talked a lot about the history of the sun and. Um, with some of the remaining time we have, I do think it's really important to get your perspective as a scientist. Why is this, you know, why is the topic of photovoltaics and why is the topic of being able to capture the sun and use it for energy, why is this important, particularly for, uh, for, for us right now, for our civilization?
1: Well, because photovoltaics is actually the only um, uh, producer of um, non-carbon um, fuel Uh, that can be um, applicable to almost any place in the world because everywhere we have the sun Mm -hmm. and also because it's modular uh it's very easy to go like i said before to evolve you can you can build it almost like lagos if you're if you have one megawatt you can do like say 500 uh, on your first try, and if you like the technology, then you go another 500. And I found this in a very practical way because I was uh, the uh, director at the University of California, Santa Barbara, of um, designing uh, solar applications uh, for the buildings on the campus. And the biggest uh, challenge was to break through uh, people's uh, oh, um, blinders on the value of photovoltaics Uh, one of the most interesting comments i got i took someone to see our first large installation and we were right under the um like the um rooftop and this person complained i can't hear them," and uh, that's really the beauty of photovoltaics is there are no moving parts
0: (laughs) that's right it's about moving electrons. Yeah, I think, the, and the reason that the solar panels are as big as they are, frankly, is to protect the electrical components, the bus bars that connect the, the cells. But in, in any given uh, panel, the, typically the cells themselves are about 100 microns. I mean, very, very thin. It doesn't take much to create that, what they call the PN junction, to create what's essentially uh, an, an unlimited uh, uh, opportunity to capture energy with uh, obviously in tandem with the sun without the sun energizing the cells you don't create a current but with the sun essentially cells will never sort of like stop working Um, over time they do degrade but it usually has to do with the glass getting cloudy or the bus bars slowly breaking down but the actual silicon cell itself there's no reason that the useful life of those couldn't be a hundred years it's really a fantastic uh, technology. Well, also, what I think is fascinating
1: to see from a historical point of view is the inertia, uh, you know, keeping us from using um, a new form of energy. Uh, for example, in the beginning, when the first solar cells were develop, uh, discovered um, in 1875, uh, that a um, light source rather than a heat source uh, could produce uh, the same electricity uh, really boggled the minds of a thermodynamically um inclined uh science community you know they thought it was some kind of perpetual motion machine because until Einstein they didn't realize that light uh carries um energy as as particles and it really um and this was the real value of Einstein's work and that's why I think it's very important to understand a little bit about the science is that um, we um understand that it's not magic, but it's scientifically based, and it's the only quantum power source that we have in the world. And that's its whole value, is that because there are no moving parts, um, there's uh, less of a possibility of having any breakdown
0: yeah well, I would say and I, I, I think you'd probably agree that in the science world a little bit of skepticism is a great thing because it pro- it, it forces us to really prove our theories out. Unfortunately, however, this has become a really politicized, Um, topic. And the the topic of energy is one where wars are fought over, countries certainly argue over. Uh, And then even here in the United States, there's somewhat of a civil war going on in the sense of how are we going to power our homes and lives into the future? You have everything from electric vehicles to um, combustion engines. You have uh, coal-fired power plants versus solar panels. Most, uh, Most cooler minds agree that there's some sort of a transition that's needed at a minimum. But let me Ask why do you think this is such a politic? I mean, you're a scientist; you tend to prove everything out. Why has this become such a politicized uh, arena? And why do why do you think that people that aren't scientists at times have such strong opinions about these things and tend to be so vocal?
1: Well, I think it's mainly because in the United States, uh, almost all the major um, energy uh, industries are um, headquartered, and so companies like Exxon companies. like uh, Chevron, um, they tend to lose if cars are running on uh solar powered electricity uh rather than fossil fuels. In fact, uh if you recall, Exxon scientists uh over forty years ago knew exactly the dangers of burning uh fossil fuels, uh, but uh suppressed that information in order to continue to sell their product. I mean uh, what psychiatrist uh, would want a uh, um, a medicine or a food that would uh, totally uh, end depression, for example, uh, they wouldn't have any business, right? So it all comes down to, I think, the uh, power of, and in, in, especially in the United States, of uh, uh, the energy companies in Houston, even though, ironically, They were the first users of photovoltaics um, in the world um, on their uh, rigs, for example, throughout the world in the uh, 1970s, which I cover in the book.
0: Yeah. Well, as a scientist and a seeker of objective truth, I I would think that you'd find those things particularly enraging.
1: Well, and also um, the neocons were extremely um, uh, anti-solar because... Uh, it um totally um i think it irritated them um that something uh so simple uh could do so much and also eliminated uh the former uh infrastructure uh that um uh, we have built in this country uh to produce energy. so I think it's a a mindset i think it's b influenced by a lot of interest groups like uh people like like, that oh for example mansion uh from uh west virginia because um if you know if if you can produce electricity cheaper and cleaner um than coal uh there goes his um oh coffer his coffers are empty
0: yeah i will say though however he was the one that did it was it was partly through bipartisan um, you know a bipartisan effort but uh you know championed this inflation reduction act which is going to be perhaps the biggest piece of legislation ever in terms of pushing forward renewable energy
1: well uh in today's news he's uh actually um uh entered a food fight with uh Biden who um wants to you know go um you know uh extreme uh you know you know Biden wants to really apply the um you know the, the uh, act you talk about, while a uh, mansion wants to slow it down uh, because it threatens uh, the way he makes money. I mean, if you had like a supermarket and suddenly uh, you were told that you could buy like oh uh, a a seed that you could plant in your house or something that could provide you with all the you know the food you needed, of course you would oppose that, right?
0: Well, we, we've we've, we've, uh, we've ventured pretty deep into about as political as this podcast tends to get, so <laughs> which is great. I, but I will, I do want to ask you one other thing on, on this, because uh, sure. one, one of the other buzzwords that, that gets floated around a lot, you hear it a lot from like the Fortune 500 companies, actually previous guests have come on and talked about that as many as 96% of the S&P 500 have some sort of sustainability goal. So this term ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance rules, um, is because a real buzzword and it's also become a fairly polarizing word. There are those that say that it's part of this uh, and and borrowing from things that I've read, not necessarily my own thinking, but it's part of this woke leftist uh, uh, movement. And then there are others that say, no, this is just the right thing to do. It's environmental, it's social, it's corporate governance. These are the things that we've always been talking about and it's always been important and companies are now actually coming to the forefront and saying, look, we agree that these social issues, these environmental issues, the way that we govern ourselves as a corporate entity these are important issues and important topics and so um, you know and 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 so i think on the solar side it has typically always been uh, thought of in the environmental so the e part of that esg but i don't think i think it's really understated how important the s the social part of this is when you realize that as many as 800 people today 800 million people in in the world today still do not have access to energy to do not have access to electricity and the things that we're doing now to develop solar in the first world have trickled down, have huge benefits to what was previously thought of as the third world. These, these, uh, societies, uh, that don't have access to electricity. I would imagine that your book talks a lot about how important access to energy is as it relates to civilization and civilization development. Oh
1: yeah. Well, um, actually, um, I cover a whole chapter,s called uh, um, "You know," it, it's it's on this whole question uh, because uh, what I try to show is how best to apply a um, electricity for the unelectrified. Uh, there's that's the only way because what happens is the other ways are so expensive um, that few people can afford it. And also the fact that uh, so many people in, uh, say, you take Africa, uh, live um, beyond the uh, grid, uh, that the grid only serves the urban areas. And, um, oh, for example, Kenya, um, a, a real moneymaker for, uh, say, an impoverished household is to have a solar panel where you can power a TV and then sell tickets to your neighbors uh, to you know, watch the television at night. And it's also, and I found this very um, amusing, but also very important, is the number one way of uh, birth control is a solar panel, and the reason for that is because um, it it keeps the uh, man in the house uh, away from the woman for three or four hours a night, right? And it also empowers women because women now with uh, electric lighting uh, can actually earn, uh, money by doing, uh, various, uh, uh, sellable tasks. And so she can say, you've got to put a contraceptive on guy because I earn, you know, the, uh, homes, um, the, you know, the family's income. So it's been a very empowering, uh, um, application too. So no, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, born for, um, like, uh, that's the beauty of solar. It can do both, um, urban power. And it can do a uh, very, uh, oh, um, you might say, oh, uh, rural uh, electricity. And it can provide so many different uh, services, uh, like it can provide a light in an operating room. Uh, I don't know if uh, in the book I have is like a camel with a solar collector on its hump, and um, what that is is, cre is keeping the cold chain going uh so medicines uh that are brought in say uh from the ocean uh can be brought and not like oh um oh adulterated in the trip uh to say uh, some um isolated outpost uh because the panel can keep that cold, you know the cold chain um functioning. Yeah. Well, what I really love, uh, the the reason I really love photovoltaics, I actually wrote a whole book on photovoltaics uh, called From Space to Earth, The Story of Le- uh, Solar Electricity. And that became a part, actually, of uh, Let It Shine. Um, I cover the entire uh, story of PV uh, from the first solar cell that was built in 1875 uh, to um, the current
0: well John I got to tell you we, we, we appreciate you so much for coming on the show and being able to share your wealth of knowledge obviously the research that you've put in as an author and, and your ongoing research as a professor has uh, is, it's so important that each of us have the opportunity to hear and learn from people that are really dedicating I would say the large parts of their life uh, towards uh, towards the betterment of, of humanity and I think that that's what you're doing when you're when you're working on understanding uh, photovoltaics more importantly energy that's derived from the Sun um, it's it's really, uh, I think, for this podcast, one of the things that we certainly emphasize is is that, again, um, I think that our society here in the United States and the world are well-served through a transition to renewable and sustainable energy powered by the sun. And obviously it's in the short run, it's going to be a piece or a part of what we're doing. It's a, there's a natural evolution, evolution and transition, but, uh, we, we, we genuinely appreciate the work that you've done on trying to illuminate or elucidate to the public, um, the, uh, you know, the benefits, the value and, and the importance of it. Well, I appreciate the, um, the time you've provided me with. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Genuinely appreciate you sharing the wisdom with us and, and look forward potentially to another opportunity to, to, to sit down and visit with you.
1: I'd love to. So it was a joy to speak with you today.
0: Thanks for listening to The Solar Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share us with your colleagues and friends who are passionate about solar, renewable energy, and the future of the environment. We'll talk to you soon.